when those you know, who, who can't help themselves are in danger or they are in trouble or they are in need, who then stands in the gap? Who carries the flag for the absolute helpless? Well, I don't know if this is a, much of a surprise, but that responsibility falls upon you. And that responsibility falls upon me. Now, though, this responsibility is an option for all of humanity. But as Christians, this is an obligation because of our humanity. The gospel calls for every Christian to the least of these. You see, the very Bibles that you are holding or your phone is open to throbs with God's commitment to the fatherless, to the widows, to the poor, who we'll be talking about next week, and the weak. So then for today, if we considered who around us, again, is the absolute helpless, the absolute helpless of helpless of helpless, the least of these, who would we consider that to be? Clearly, what we've been talking about today, it makes sense. That is the pre-born. That is the infant. Christians, those here, they are, they are the ones that we stand in the gap for. And again, if you think about it, this is obviously a very sobering call and challenge for any Christian today where the reality of abortion is just assumed. Abortion is just assumed. Much of the younger generation here, we don't know a world in which abortion wasn't accepted and encouraged in government and political circles. But we obviously are, are, are not naive. We know that abortion has always existed. If you were to Google it up, you would see from church history all the way to the, the, the Oedipus mythology to, 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 to today at Collective Church. I mean, this is why I stand up here, not vying. You're not going to hear today us vying for some sort of like legislative change or just legislative change or even just encouraging some political revolt. Like we're not passing out picket signs when we're done here. No, no, this church's aim, as I believe any church's aim, should be for something infinitely deeper and eternal. You see, if we were to treat abortion as merely a political issue, if this was just a political issue, that completely ignores the call for the local church for us and being salt and light. Excuse me. So if we want, and which we do, but we want abortion doctors, abortionists to cease, but that's not enough. We want abortionists to find life in Jesus. We want abortionists in this very room. We want abortionists with arms raised high in praise and in prayer and in worship. Because everything we're about to go over this morning finds its source and its origin and its hope in what the Bible calls the good news of Jesus Christ. So because of that, I stand before you today, not as a scientist, not as a politician, not as a doctor, and obviously not as a woman or as a pregnant woman. But I've prepped for today's talk as a Bible teacher. And if we as a Bible-believing church desire to make today so clear with reason and with biblical authority. You see, as a pastor, I come today with an outcry for us to have awareness for us to have education, for us to be broken and then completely rebuilt with compassion and empathy. 
Today's a call to care and to love greatly. And we've been talking about that for the last couple of weeks, to love greatly the mother, the child, choice advocates, and abortionists. Because if we stand up for the least of these, if you think about it, if we're just going to stand up for the least of these, that is not just a single individual. That involves an entire communal aspect. Who remembers the 17th century poet who said the words, no man is an island? We've probably heard these words before. That is true of both mother and child, both women and children. And the longer abortion is present, the more it grows in its communal aspects. What I mean is, isn't it fair to say that the reality of abortion has touched us all? At some point in our lives, we've come across some sort of dynamic that has to do with abortion. I know I have. I recently talked with my sister this past week about the constant realization that when she was conceived, my father fought diligently to have her terminated. And thank God every day that my mother won that argument. Abortion is a shadow that runs across us all. Mothers, our sisters may, our friends, our daughters, our spouses, girlfriends, or even coworkers. Maybe even some of you here today have had pregnancy scares and considered it. And what we must understand as well is abortion, like I've said, it touches everybody, not just women. Even men here today, men who have been men who have maybe possibly pushed their partners for abortions who may now walk in shame or regret, or even men who were victimized by their, their spouses or their girlfriends or their mates' decision to get an abortion. But more than anything, we are not ignorant to the fact that someone here could have had an abortion. So what we want to say today is I speak to everyone, yes, but especially to you, if that is you, Listen, we're not, and I'm not, going to ever possibly pretend that we could even begin to know the depth of your circumstances or life. The choices that you've had to make, the pressures that you've had, that possibly you've received, or possibly even if there's condemnation, guilt, or fear. But here's what I do know. We as a church community extend, all of us, grace, humility, and compassion. I speak as the pastor of this church that no stones will be cast by any of us. With every abortion of, an, of a child, there's also a woman. And with that woman, if she is here now, she will not be demonized in this community. Why? Because the same grace we extend to you, we ourselves have received So Christians know, we as Christians know, no situation, no past action, no secret is ever helpless in Jesus Christ. Now I have been speaking, I've been speaking very collectively. (laughs) I've been speaking very broadly and very vaguely and speaking for the whole of the community here. Yes, we are a church and most of us are Christians. Not all of us are Christians in this room, but most of us. But we also know that not all of us believe the same thing with this issue. In fact, I know many unchristians who would be considered life-affirming, and I know many unchristians who are pro-abortion. Or excuse me, the other way, and I know many Christians who are pro-abortion, if that makes sense. And for those who really do know this topic in-depthly, if you've studied it, let me just say this right now. Today cannot be exhaustive. Today cannot be exhaustive. My goal is to be clear and give all of us some level footing 
as we seek to understand abortion from the viewpoint of God, like I've said, what is the argument? Basically, what is the problem? And even what exactly is abortion? Between, I mean, even that there, to under, even understand what even is abortion, many would say it's this, that it's surgical contraception. But we have to be so careful with that language, with all language in the subject, but with that language, because many women's rights activists and choice advocates hate that phrasing because it's an overgeneralization. Pro-abortionists, pro-abortion would often encourage one to say that abortion is ending a pregnancy. They would like it to be defined as ending a pregnancy or terminating a pregnancy, or even harder to hear, emptying the contents of the uterus. Now, to draw a neutral line, so for those here today who are seeking to understand differing views, let's go to the very basics. Oxford Dictionary. Okay, so I'm going to read the actual Oxford Dictionary. We should have it up behind me of the definition of abortion. It's the expulsion or removal from the womb of a uh, developing embryo or fetus in the period before it is capable of independent survival. That at its core is the defining of a procedure where in which the unborn remain just that, unborn. Now my fear and what I'm about to go over next is that some might hear say, no, that's, that's, don't do that. That's contrived. Don't, don't share what you're about to share. Because what I want to do right now is share stats, numbers, and figures. And I share this only to help our awareness and for some here to wake us up. In my research, which I've done my best I could, I've tried very, very hard to excavate and define non-biased stats that are as up-to-date as as possible. And the best resource that anybody, if you're curious, could go and look from is from what's called the Guttmacher Institute. If you're familiar with the abortion discussion, you should probably know that name. That should be a very familiar name. Alan Guttmacher is basically, you could call him the father of Planned Parenthood. The father of Planned Parenthood from, geez, oh, so many years ago. So the Guttmacher Institute is a former research arm of Planned Parenthood. And their data site is beyond thorough. It's insanely thorough. So friends, this is the trusted source on stats. And these are very non-biased and it's not a Christian website. Sadly though, let me just say this now. The last time all the information was gathered was 2014. So I wish I could give you accurate to date, but I can't. This is the best that we have. So Guttmacher reports, allow me just to read this, that 50% of women who have had abortions have had a previous one. 30% of women by the age of 45 will have had an abortion. The most common age of women to have an abortion is between the ages of 20 and 29. 59% of abortions are obtained with mothers who already have children. 49% of mothers who enact an abortion are below the poverty line. Again, we're going to be talking about that more next week. Making this entire figure, the whole figure, that there are just over 1 million abortions that occur annually. 
one million abortions that occur every year. Now, please hear me. This figure is not global. This is 1.06 million abortions for the United States alone each and every year. That translates to 2,800 abortions a day, even today in this moment. So from 1973 Roe v. Wade to now, there's a strong estimation that both sides can agree on that around 55 to 60 million babies have been terminated. Now let's stop there for a moment. We know that there are abortions that exist with every different trimester when they take place. As well, we also know that there are different types of abortions that make up this million. So the 55 to 60 million is only a number that we have record of. This isn't calculating illegal, hidden, back alley abortions. The Supreme Court itself has stated this exact words. I'm literally quoting them. This, is, this number is well, well over, well over 54 million abortions that have occurred since 1973. Those are those, their words. Now, to let this sink in just a little bit, my brain works in comparisons. I don't know about yours, but my brain works with comparisons. These numbers tell us, 54 to 60 million tell us, that that's roughly double the population of California. That's the entire population of Canada gone. It's almost three times the population of Australia. That's a higher population than Portugal, Rwanda, South Sudan, and Hungary combined. With these kinds of facts, it's no wonder that this is the most frequently performed surgery on adults in America today. That being publicized by the National Service of Health. So, tons of random, crazy numbers thrown at you really, really fast. What's really the issue? What's the problem, Casey? Because basically, I'm not up here giving you stats and figures about people who are getting root canals, right? Unless we have level footing, these stats are as useful as if I was telling you about the many people across our country who are getting haircuts. So then, what is the root of the abortion divide? Well, here's the good news, and this is very helpful. It's the same root on both sides. It's the same root for both sides. You see, if we dug that root up, we wouldn't find a scientific equation. We would not find some signed legislative bill. We'd end up with a very simple but cataclysmic question. That being, what is the unborn? What is the unborn? This is the question. What is the unborn? If you're taking notes, get your Sharpie out and make it massive. What is it within the womb of every pregnant woman? What is it within the womb of all 54 million pregnant women from 1973 until now? Because depending on how you answer that question, it either gives permission or pause to the following question, which is, can it be terminated? Can it be terminated? If you were to ask me, Casey, can it be terminated? My answer is a hundred percent yes. If the unborn does not possess life. And to be more clear, if that unborn doesn't possess personhood. As one author said, 
named Scott Klusendorf, I believe. If the unborn are not human, killing them through elective abortion requires no more justification than having your tooth pulled. What is the unborn and can we terminate it? Well, before we even get to the Bible, let's build a case logically. I've shared these logical steps, considerations for the last three years that we've taught on this sanctity of day, uh, excuse me, sanctity um, life. Sanctity life day. Sorry. I've shared these because I really want these to sink deep within, you know, our tertiary. These are very important considerations that I think will equip us um, in how we talk about this, this, massive, massive, massive issue. So there's three logics of thought regarding the identity of the unborn. So again, if you want to take notes, I would encourage you to do that now. But logic number one, logic number one, we all know both sides of discussion can battle it out with both science and biology. Both sides can. One side proclaiming the unborn is what? It's, it's a classic, it's a lump of tissue or it's a clump of cells. Another side saying that there is proof of life when the sperm penetrates the ovium, fertilizing the egg. This creates what science calls a zygote. Who's heard of that term? Pretty popular term. This creates a zygote, which is recognized by all, all, all biologists as a genetically distinct individual. Genetically distinct individual. So then whether you know anything about science or not, wouldn't be, it be at least logical to consider that every fertilized egg, that every zygote, whether you want to call it, whatever you want to call it, early stage of development or not, is a genetically distinct individual. And a less sciencey term would be, at least it's human. Can we just all agree that at least it's human? Meaning never once has the mating process between human and human ever produced a scooter. Never has it produced a cactus. Never has it produced a red-tailed hawk, as amazing as that would be. I'm in full support of that, but it's not going to happen. Science and biology and logic tells us it's a genetically distinct fetus. (gasps) Did he just say fetus? Yes, very intentionally, very intentionally, because that fetus, that word means in Latin, offspring, little one or little child. So side note, saying the unborn isn't human, it's a fetus. It's just like saying that's not a house, that's a home. Second, logical logic of thought. Science and biology would call and tell all of us that what is inside the womb is an organism. Cool, fine, whatever, that's fine. So I present, is it safe? Is it logical? to consider it, to identify it as a human organism. See, we know it's not a cactus organism. We know it's not a red-tailed hawk organism. So the rational understanding would make this a genetically distinct human organism. But then here's the thing. And this is exactly what I taught my middle schoolers when I taught middle school global science in biology. First, I taught middle schoolers use deodorant. Always. The class reeks. And I taught them to ease off Axe body spray. You do the seven position. This is what I taught them, okay? But when I was done teaching them classic hygiene, I told them straight from the textbook this. Organisms have the capacity to do what? 
to develop, to grow. I just remember, Cassandra, you're a massive medical person. I hope, oh Lord, God. <laughs> Organisms have the capacity to do what they develop. Can anyone guess what human organisms develop into? You guys can talk in church. It's totally fine. Humans. <laughs> yes, humans. You guessed it. A capacity that lumps of tissues, clumps of cells do not possess. So first logic of thought, again, if you're taking notes for clarity, is I presented, can we agree that it's human by nature? Two would be, can we rationally agree that's a human organism? And third logical consideration is this. Can we at least consider that it's alive? That it's alive. It takes nutrients, it has its own genetic code, and it matures on multiple different levels. To be clear, what happens if you leave a sperm out for nine months? Does it grow? Oh, it dies. Friends, all of my resources claim strongly that every embryology textbook out there states these facts, that conception and life are the same thing. Please do not take my word for it. I beg you not to take my word for it, but leave this place and do the research. These logical rationales are what choice advocates, and bear with me here, and even what Planned Parenthood would say, oh yeah, that's an obvious fact. Yeah, that's obvious. Princeton professor of philosophy and atheist Pete Singer. Does anybody know that name? He's quite famous. Yes. He says, it is possible to give human being a precise meaning. We can use it as equivalent to member of the uh, species Homo sapiens. Whether a being is a member of a giving species is something that, we can be, that can be determined scientifically by an examination of the nature of chromosomes and the cells of living organisms. In this sense, there's no doubt that from the first moments of its existence, an embryo can see from human sperm and eggs is a human being. Author David Boonin in his book, A Defense of Abortion, he says, perhaps the most straightforward relation between you and me on the one hand and on the human fetus on the other hand is this. All are living members of the same species, homo sapiens. A human fetus, after all, is simply a human being at its very early stage in his or her development. Alan Guttmacher himself said this decades and decades before Roe v. Wade he said this in regards and response to the logical understanding that this is a human. He said this, this all seems so simple, Alan says, and evident that it is difficult to picture time when it wasn't part of common knowledge. Additionally, for what it's worth, a Planned Parenthood brochure from 1964 when answering a question about whether or not abortion was birth control states, absolutely not, it says. An abortion ends the life of a baby after it has begun. The truth is I could flood this room with medical resources and scientific, secular science, all stating that personhood and life start at conception. And as much as I believe that, because I do, but for so many in here, it would not be fair to hold science as the, as the, as the deciding factor. Because there will never, ever, ever be an agreement for both parties. Ever. 
Nadine Strassen, who some of you know, she's a radical woman's activist, rights activist, and has done incredible things for women. She herself, a choice advocate, she agrees with me and has said publicly many times that there are many disagreements among science because science itself is divided. Not that science is inconclusive, but that people will never agree. See, the more I read on this subject and the more our technology advances, it seems that society doesn't need to be convinced whether or not it's a human or a growing organism that is alive. Here's what society's at today. A salon journalist captures culture's current mood with this. She says, I believe that's what a fetus is, a human life. And that doesn't make me one iota less solidly pro-choice. After all, all life is not equal. After all, all life is not equal. The last couple of weeks, as Pastor Lorenzo has said, as we've been doing a very small series on the doctrine on the image of God. And we have worked hard that biblically and theologically and even personally answer the question, what is the human person? Last week, we took time to see how one man's sin has turned another man into a machine or animal with the horrifying reality of racism. This week, we take time to see how abortion takes human person and turns that image bearer, turns that image bearer into an inconvenience. There, just to draw some comparison, there's so many severe similarities between both racism and abortion because these both fall under the, I'm going to use stark language, they fall under the wicked banner of dehumanization. Both of them. This is not, well, no, think about it. Is this not the communal, deep-rooted sin between person and person? If I sin against you or you sin against me from image bearer to image bearer, isn't that essentially what we're constantly doing in that moment, in that event, in that sin, is dehumanizing the other person? Or maybe I'll make it more relevant. Are we not de-imaging them of God. Abuse, pornography, murder, gossip, harassment, rape, racism, and abortion are all interlocked with the chain of deciding who has value and who doesn't. Who was equal and who was not. Friends, forgive me for this very upsetting illustration. But that type of processing sounds very familiar to Nazi Germany. It sounds also very familiar to the Three-Fifths Compromise, where some man came along and said that the African-American community are three-fifths a man, three-fifths a woman, three-fifths a person. Now, the pushback on all of this of equality and value is this. What about the woman? Casey, what you've forgotten is the woman. What about the woman? Absolutely. So let me just say for the record now, we are advocates, advocates for women's liberty, for women's rights, and for women to make choices. 
If you're here and you're curious about the Christian faith or what the church is, please do not hear me say that the biblical church or that the Christian faith is anti-woman or anti-women's rights. We believe, excuse me, we believe that every woman, every woman must choose their spouse, their church, their careers, their faith, their home, their relationships, the amount of kids they want, and so on and so forth. But now let me Ask this, does the right to privacy, the right to choose, or bodily autonomy change when another life is involved? And it's with this point that many popular rebuttals come into play about, what about rape or incest? What about if the mother is dying in pregnancy or birth, excuse me? And what about if the girl is 14 and she's about to be thrown out onto the street? heavy, heavy rebuttals, heavy questions. And I will say this, every single one of them have strong, strong women affirming and life affirming answers. And here's my invitation to anybody here. If you want to dialogue about them in a healthy way, tell me, I will meet with you. I will buy you a burrito and I will sit down and I'll give you as much time as needed to talk about these very truths. If you leave this place, stewing, upset, mad, because I did not answer these, I'm giving you the opportunity right now to sit with me, to meet with me. It's out there. For the sake of time, we'd be here till 3 a.m. or all night if we were going to try to answer those questions. But here's the truth. Those cases I just mentioned are not the norm of the 54 to 60 million abortions. I say this gently, but I say this firmly. The image of God, when we are discussing the image of God, what this does is it slows down, is this a woman's issue or humanity's issue? And it brings it to a screeching halt and roars and belts and screams, this is God's issue. I know... Very, very frankly, like I've said multiple times, that this is not, uh, I'm not speaking to all Christians. It's mostly Christian, yes. And Christians need these truths as much as anybody else, as much as the rest of the world. And actually, for what it's worth, Gumarker reported that 43% of women who have had elective abortions identify themselves as Protestant, God-fearing Christians. 43 One out of every five abortions were done by people who identify themselves as image bearer of God. One out of five. See, I'm absolutely um, haunted. And I want you to join me in this haunting by the words of one Christian pastor who chose abortion and said the words, well, they're not going to be on the screen because I just want you to hear them. I just want to read them to you. This is what they said. So just listen. She said, I could have loved that life, but I chose not to. I did what men do all the time when they take us to war. They choose violence because while they believe it is bad, it is still better than the alternatives. When I made my choice to end Alma's life, I was, I was behaving as an adult. It was a human life. That is why we named her. That is why we named her and wanted her. But also we knew we did not want her enough. 
That is why we named her. But also we knew, we knew, we knew, we knew we did not want her enough. This word knew has been gnawing at me all week. This word knew gnaws at me now as I read the story about Alma. My heart erupts hearing that. What these people knew is that, and what only would further their life, what these people didn't know was the gospel of Jesus Christ. That pastor does not know the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news of Jesus is that the son of God came as a zygote, as a fetus, as a genetically distinct individual and the least of these. And that son of God came, Jesus, to intercept God's wrath and he carried our flag and he represented man's sin in murder, in rape, in gossip, and in abuse. So that man or woman with any guilt, if they're bearing any guilt or fear or condemnation for their wrongdoing or for their wrong choosing, can now be set free. You see, if, if we didn't, if there wasn't had to do this gnarly long talk or message or come together on Sundays, if we came together and there wasn't redemption, <laughs> what are we doing here? Go home, have brunch, mimosas, Sunday fun day. Don't be here if there's no redemption. Gosh, we didn't come here to listen to some chubby guy rant. We came here to hear and to be told again and again and again how there is no sin, no offense, no action, no abortion with more power than the cross of Christ. That is why we're here. Look at this. I, we just read one type of new and knowing from that pastor couple. Compare this to Jeremiah chapter one in your Bibles where hopefully you're open to still. Verse five. Compare what we just read that that pastor couple said to this. We knew, we knew, we knew we did not want her enough. Compared to these words, Jeremiah 1.5, before I formed you in the womb, what? I knew you. 10 of the most compelling, transforming words we could ever read. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before any person knows God, guess what? God knows them. This turns everything we thought we ever, ever, ever knew about God and about Christianity in complete reverse. Here's why. Christian culture has made God this quest. Christian culture has made God this question to answer. Has made God a, a being to try and please. Christian culture has made God a book to try and read or a sermon to listen to. But this I knew you we are reading, seems to make it the opposite. Pastor Eugene Peterson says it this way. Long before we got around to asking questions about God, God had begun questioning us. Long before we got interested in the subject of God, God subjected us to the most intensive and searching knowledge. All of this saying that long before we deem who was equal, valuable, lovable, or important, God has already done the deeming, the titling, the claiming that we are equal, valuable, lovable, and important. But the value, what we have to see here is, is, is yes, we'll say it this way. Absolutely, absolutely, the creation of life begins at conception, but the value of life begins with the creator. 
for many of us, and this is, this is a full-blown confession right now, for many of us with performance anxiety, me, for with worries and fears or abandonment issues, me, working intensely to be liked or scrambling to be wanted, what Jeremiah 1 does is it melts those chains and whispers that our value and worth cannot and should not be based off what we can do or what we can offer. And when that is part of the abortion debate, it's absurd to base life or dignity off of capacity of what you can do, of what the unborn, preborn can do or can't do. You really want to me to fire some people up. Let me repeat or um, requote Peter Singer again. He argues that human rights are grounded in capacities, so much so that he actually believes that a newborn isn't a person until after 30 days um, it has been born. So after 30 days from its birth. This is what he says. Human babies are not born self-aware or capable of grasping that they exist over time. They are not persons. Therefore, the life of a newborn is less value than the life of a pig, a dog, or a chimpanzee. Let me just remind you, this is a Princeton professor of philosophy. Now, he is the extreme case. And some of you are thinking right now, okay, Singer, we all know Singer's the extreme, but I wanted to go there. I wanted to go there. Because if value, I mean, if, is, is value based solely off of dependency? Would anyone take a, a, an actually born infant from the, from the wife of a mother and, and, and dispose of it? Heavens no. Would anybody say that value is solely based off of capacity or dependency? I mean, in the sense of, would any of us hurt or remove the elderly? How about those in comas? Or we say that the severely mentally disabled have no value because they've lost capacity or conscience or are, are now more dependent? God forbid. You see, thousands of critical things have happened before we are conceived. It's what's called predetermined reality. Predetermined reality. We are all born into something. Meaning, we are all born into a specific geography, specific political, or specific politics, specific culture, and specific um, ethnicity even. But there is no predetermined reality more important that has happened before before conception than the truth that we are known. Look at again at verse five of chapter one of Jeremiah. Look at this electrifying word. Before, 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 before I formed you in the womb. You see, it is him who does the forming. Before I formed you in the womb. Before, before I, I knew you. Showing us that life is beyond. Oh, he was an accident. Showing that life is more than, oops, we got pregnant. See, we are known before, chosen before, and lovable before. And, there, and then there's this, this birthmark that, almost like a birthmark, we are impressed with God's imprint as, as image bearers. Now, this is going to ruffle some feathers, but I stand by it that if you are here and you believe in the image of God, then you are vehemently, violent, oh no, that's too harsh of a word, extremely Oppose to every form of abortion. You have to be. I cannot think of any other way around it. 
So in closing, we should ask, I'll say this for all future talks or any talks. Whenever we come to a close of any talk, at the end of any sermon or whatever you want to call it, we should always be coming here with saying, now what? Now what? Preach sermons and talks are never to be passive. Again, like I said, it's about to charge us to, to participate, participate. Excuse me. So then what are we supposed to do? Can we really, the, the small church on the west side of Los Angeles, actually change the entire abortion debate? What are we supposed to do? Well, much in the same way as we talked about last week with race, race relations, and racism, we probably can't change the entire world, but we can definitely have a voice within our circles, within our offices, our neighborhoods, our classes, and our homes. I want to read probably one of the most upsetting, convicting, extreme quotes from Greg Cunningham talking to the church and their role in the abortion discussion. Greg Cunningham says this, there are more people working full-time to kill babies than there are working full-time to save them. And that's because killing babies is very profitable while saving them is very costly. So costly that large numbers of people who say they are pro-life are not lifting a finger to stop the killing. And those that do lift a finger do just enough to solve the conscience but not enough to stop the killing. So how, Collective Church, does this fit into our vision, our mission? If we are community seeking to reach, teach, and equip others, how do we reach, how do we teach, how do we equip? So I'm just going to give three very simple. These aren't all the ways for us to, to engage, but these are important ways. First, again, please write this stuff down or imprint it somewhere, wherever. I would just say the first is engage spiritually. How often, and I'm saying this to myself as well, do we implore and get on our knees for the least of these? To pray for such empathy that our eyes are filled with tears, to pray for God to intervene, to straighten our nation's path, praying consistently for, for scared women, determined women, confused women. This is a spiritual issue. This is a gospel issue. This is a God issue. Second, I would say this, engage locally. First, engage spiritually, engage locally. Claire's Health, Nikki is right over there. West Side, West Side, West Side Pregnancy Clinic. They are so close by and they've invited us to be volunteers, to be leaders at post-abortion Bible says They invited us to be part of a diaper drive, which we'll be doing soon and so much more. So here's my encouragement. If you, if you, if, if, <laughs> If, if you do anything that I've ever said, then, then, then hopefully you do this, but just go bombard Nikki. I want so many people around that table. It's like a merch table after you see your favorite band. Like I just want so many, I'll take one of those. I'll do this, I'll do this. So just bombard her. Pick her up, put her on your shoulders and carry her around the room. Yeah, Nikki. Ask questions. And lastly, and we're gonna end with this, engage earnestly. I love this word earnest or earnestly. Do you guys know what it means? I'll, I'll share it. Here's the actual definition, and I love this word. It says showing sincere and intense conviction. Christians can't just be against abortion. We can't just shake our fist at the darkness. 
Christians are called to mourn. Christians have to step in to the darkness and be a light. This means listening. Not just telling people, no, what you're doing is bad. It means listening. This means opening our homes. This means signing up to serve with Claris. This means considering adoption and foster care. This means opening our wallets. This means opening our calendars. This means being educated on language. We talked about this last week with the issue of racism. We must know the language. This also means advocating to not be weird. If, if, if you, just do me a favor. If you want to be weird and get picket signs and protests and get all Westboro Baptist, just don't say collective church. Like, don't do it. Don't even mention the Bible then, please. Please don't be weird. I don't know how any other way to say it. When having these types of conversations, it doesn't mean we sit down and throw tables over like Jesus did. I'm being Christ-like. Don't be weird. Have a healthy conversation. Listen, engage, ask questions, and know the language and research. Please don't be weird. But this means actually caring for women in crisis. This means actually caring for the unborn. This means actually caring for the orphan children who constantly get pinged back and forth in the foster care system. This means caring for the elderly, the mentally disabled, the poor, and the diseased. This means that this becomes our personal convictions and not just something the church rants about. Can that be our prayer today? For more earnestness in the things of God. If we need that, if you need that, there's going to be two people between those trees and two people along that wall. We at this church, if this is your first time here, we believe so much so in the power of intercession that every week I charge people to go allow somebody to step in like Christ to step in for us and pray for you and pray over you. So go and pray and say, I need help. You can go to them and say, I feel broken. You can go to them and say, I'm in need. I'm scared. Maybe you are feeling worthless today. Go to them and tell them that. Maybe you're feeling unlovable or feeling unknown. And once we've done that, Christians, there's communion. It's right here in the front. There's these double stacked representative elements in these two cups. You can come at any point of response and grab them and you take them to your chair or you can come to the carpet and you respond and we worship to the wild truth of before before, before I was formed, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Amen? Let's pray.